It's a joy to be back. I know that my voice is still struggling a little bit, but I will um, try to keep uh, the pace here. And we're coming back to our study in 1 Samuel chapter 20 today. So the book of 1 Samuel, and we're looking primarily at uh, chapter 20. It's a long chapter. We're not going to read it all, all at once. We'll do chunk by chunks. And there's a lot of encouragement on this passage. So um, I titled the sermon today, Hesed. It's a Hebrew word that I, I don't like bringing a whole lot of Hebrew words here, but this one is a, it's a word that um, I really want to encourage you to learn and remember what it means because it comes a lot in Scripture. It is this loving, loyal commitment, a loving, love, loyal commitment, all right? Before I get uh, started in our reading, I uh, just wanted to remind uh, those that were attending the membership class that was two weeks ago, um, remember to fill in your application, so there's some there, I'm going to make more copies and leave it at the table, and then turn to one of the elders, your application. We will have an interview with you if you haven't been interviewed yet so that w when we present you here on the right hand of fellowship, um, we'll know that we, we've already um, had that discussion with you, okay? So we're just changing things a little bit and um, it's just a way of encouragement for us to really welcome those that are becoming uh, part of our body here, all right? Um, we do have a baptism as well, so um, we got two candidates now, but if there are more people interested and would like clarification on that, feel free to contact one of us and we'll help you out, all right? Okay, so as this week I was prepping and uh, thinking about testimonies, I was just helping the people that will be baptized to write their testimonies, and I've been listening and watching some videos of people giving their testimony. And one, it's a little old testimony, is this of a Scottish preacher. His name is George Matheson, and he was in the late 1800s. Um, he wrote the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that hymn, and it's very precious to me. But his story is very interesting. Um, he graduated with first-class honors when he was only 19 years old. But a deep tragedy was being worked out in his life as he completed his studies. George was rapidly going blind. He had an incurable condition that would eventually result in total blindness, and there was nothing that could be done to help him. While at the university, he had met and fallen in love with a young girl, I think this college time is <laughs> a place where this normally happens. He met this girl who was a fellow student, and they were planning to get married. And he eventually broke the news of his impending blindness to her. And the question comes, will she still marry him? To his astonishment and deep sadness, her blunt answer came to him with the force of a dagger to his heart. She says, I cannot go through life with a blind man. And with that, they parted. He went blind while I was studying for ministry, and his sister had been the one who had been taking care of him for years. Um, he had been a brilliant student, and some say that he hadn't gone blind. He could have been the leader of the Church of Scotland on his day. One of his friends wrote, when he saw the purposes of his scholarship, uh, for the purpose of his scholarship, his blindness was fate and hindrance. He withdrew from his studies, but not without pangs. But finally, so what I like about the story of George Matheson, I'm going to pick it up at the end of our sermon today, is that his sister was so diligent to help him to write his papers, to be able to complete his education, even to prep some of his sermons, she was assisting him in his disability. That was loyalty and, and faithfulness, and that's what we're going to touch on today. And I think of this kind of commitment and loyalty as we look at our 
the world around us, it is disheartening because you don't see this kind of commitment anymore. Though the number of divorces seems to be steadily reducing, we're reminded that less and less people are actually getting married. The number of people also living together with no commitment is more and more common. Shared partnership has substituted the covenant of marriage. Loyalty and selfless kindness are rarer and rarer. No commitment. I I watch sometimes commercials as I'm watching TV, and no commitment has become the slogan for pretty much anything that you want to sell. It is the catch. There's no commitment. No commitment with a spouse, no not being tied to anyone, not responsibilities, no responsibilities with others, no membership, no commitment. Our account today will be a window into a parallel world of God's people and how a loyal God protects and preserves his chosen one through the faithfulness of a friend. In this chapter, the Lord protects David through the loyalty of faithful Jonathan, illustrating the point that the Lord often accomplishes his redemptive work in the world through human instruments who are committed to his purposes, even when it may not seem to be at their best interests. Jonathan is an example to the Isilic readers, the people that this book was written to, to remind them of God's faithfulness and how he would preserve the Davidic line, to, to remind them of the importance of supporting God's program and chosen leader. At that time, they were, being, you know, they were in a foreign land, so submitting to the leadership of, of Babylon was not something that they wanted to do, and they, they're being reminded here, when you oppose to God's program, you will suffer. But when you support him, like Jonathan did, you you will be blessed. And so let's then open our account here, and I'll give you more clarity as we go. Let's read verses 1 through 16. Thus says the word of God. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? He said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. So Jonathan said to David, to, so David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I ought to sit down to eat with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked to leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it is yearly sacrificed there for the whole family. And if he says, it is good, your servant will be safe. For he is very, if, but if he is very angry, know that he has decided on evil. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity in me, put me to death yourself, for why then should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, far be it from you. For if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Jonathan said to David, Come, 
Let us go out into the field. So both of them went out to the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow and the third day or the third day, behold, if, if there is a good feeling toward David, shall I not then send you and make it known to you? If it, please my, if it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord? That's the word there. And that I may not die. You shall not cut off your loving kindness again from my house forever. Not even the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemy. And Jonathan made, made David vow again because of his love for him. Because he loved him as he loved his own life. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you knowing that your words are applicable. doesn't matter if it is in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Your whole word is true. And it's helpful. It is useful to teach us, to give us examples that we can follow, and to give us warnings. Lord, I pray that as we look at this commitment between Jonathan and David, we would learn how you preserve your people and how you use people to accomplish your, your will. I pray, Father, that you would keep us from any distraction and just help us, Lord, to glean from your word and to be encouraged by it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So you have your sermon outlined there if you want to follow. Uh, we will see today four characteristics of a loving, loyal commitment that is expressed in the covenant word there made, in, made between Jonathan and David. So if you're... Uh, following there, the first one, the covenant provides safe haven in uncertainty. And we're looking primarily at verses 1 through 11. I do want to remind you that in chapter 19, the last time we studied here, my voice went out. <laughs> you remember that. Um, David was being persecuted already by Saul, and he tried to pin him down at least three times, right? So there was twice once and then twice later and so and he is sending people to pick him up his wife already helped him to get away from the palace and then after all of that Saul keeps sending soldiers and they they just start prophesying the Lord takes on them and we were left off with Saul himself going and being in a very deplorable state Naked, right? In chapter 19. So chapter 19 ended in the day and night of Saul's prophetic marathon in verse 24 of chapter 19. It gave David two time to escape somewhere. He arrives apparently in Gibeah at Jonathan's home, and David knows what Saul is trying to do. He says, your father keeps seeking my life. But why is he doing so? Is there some wrong that David committed? There's some guilt on his part which he's not aware. What in the world is happening here? I can't imagine for David the confusion. I have been serving him. I have been doing um, his battles. What have, what have I done? If nothing else, uh, knowing what made Saul so angry would help David understand such erratic and irrational behavior displayed by the king. Jonathan remains unconvinced that there is any real danger for David. And it's kind of <laughs> interesting when we read here on uh, verse 2. 
Uh, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. Why, why would he keep that from me? Um, and so David, but David knows. I want you to remind you that the last time that Jonathan talked to his father in chapter 19, let's go back there, verse 6. So Saul is intent to kill David, and then Jonathan comes and interceded for him, verse 6. So Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. So the last time that Jonathan knew about the situation, everything was okay. Everything was fine. It was taken care of. Saul has just changed his mind, and now he's not going to kill David anymore. But he didn't know that he already attempted to kill him a few times after that. And so would, who would expect Saul to keep Jonathan posted? That's the question. That's what Jan, uh, David is going to tell Jonathan. He knows that you would favor me. That's why he wouldn't tell you anything. So Saul lost the spirit of Yahweh, but not his political sense. David knows the true score, an oath, and he asserted there is hardly one step between me and death. As some would say today, Jonathan, I am hanging by a thread. <laughs> I'm barely keeping alive. So his friend eventually agrees to assist David in whatever he can. And boy, don't you want to hear that <laughs> at times? Whatever you say, I would do it for you. I think it's the dream of every wife, right? <laughs> that the husband would say, whatever you say, I will do for you. Why do you want me to fix the, the pipes? I'll fix the pipes. You want me to do the dishes? I'll do the dishes. It's the dream of every wife. Um, and some husbands, too, I would say. <laughs> it would be nice to have the garage clean. But what a faithfulness. With those jokes apart. But boy, this is a friend. No objections. No excuses. What is that that needs to be done? I'll do it. David proposes a task situation that may review Saul's mind, especially in reference to the David and Jonathan association. David's seat in the palace will be empty after the monthly dinner. At this point, David both appeals to Jonathan and explains why he has now turned to him. So verse 8, let's pick up from there. It says, what does he say? Therefore... Deal kindly, and I want to draw your attention, that expression, deal kindly, is the word hesed. You show this loyal compassion, this loving commitment to your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of Yahweh, or the Lord, with you. But if there is iniquity or guilt in me, put me to death yourself. David is saying, you know, if I have done wrong, I'd rather have you, who is a righteous person, to kill me. But obviously, he hadn't done anything done, uh, wrong, deserving of death. So why would David dare to turn to Saul's son when under Saul's attack? Only because Jonathan had determined a covenant of the Lord or a covenant of Yahweh with David. That is, a covenant in which Yahweh was a witness to and guardian of its promises. He refers to the covenant made in chapter 18. Let's go back there. Chapter 18. Mind you, uh, Jonathan might be probably at least five or ten years older than David. He's kind of like a mentor to David. And in verse 3 and 4, he says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe, his royal garment of a prince that was on him and gave it to David. 
and with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. David, this clothing belongs to you. You are the prince. You are the one that will take um, on the kingdom. So this covenant involves a firm, firm promises and solemn commitments. That is why in his uncertainty and his this desperate flight, David turned to Jonathan. There was a covenant, a stronghold of certainty, a safe haven in both a dangerous and chaotic time. I mean, you try to make sense of this. The guy is all good with you. You're playing for him, and all of a sudden he wants to spear you. It, it, how do you make sense of any of this? So imagine put yourself in David's shoes and thinking about that. You needed a safe haven and a stronghold. David then expects Jonathan to act with this hesed toward him because of their covenant. So even though David is a lesser and needy partner in this covenant, three times David refers himself to a servant. Deal with your servant. He's humbling himself, saying, you know, I'm just a vassal in this kingdom. Uh, so David refers to himself as his servant. Covenant and his said are tightly, tightly related in the scripture. So this loyal commitment is very connected to covenant. English versions may vary the way they translate this, and you might be familiar with some of them. We have the NASV that translates as deal kindly, while the New Jerusalem Bible, the Catholic Bible, they do show faithful love. That's how they translate that expression. Um, the term, this word, occurs nearly 250 times in the Old Testament. So it's a very common word. Traditionally, it is translated as mercy. If you have a King James Version, you will probably read that. Um, or steadfast love on the Revised Standard Version, loving kindness in some New American standards. And sometimes... The, some translation like the NIV will just translate that as love. It, it carries this idea of love and compassion and affection, but often with the additional connotation of loyalty. Loyalty, reliability, faithfulness. This is steadfast love that is not broken. Hesed often has that flavor. It is not merely love, but a loyal love. Not merely kindness, but a dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. So in our passage, then David appeals to Jonathan to treat him with this loving, loyal commitment. He has reason to believe that Jonathan will do so because Jonathan has promised the covenant of Yahweh. As the covenant, he gives him reason to look for and depend upon this loving, loyal commitment. It is crucial, however, to remember that Jonathan's covenant itself was this expression of his love for him. In verses 1 and 3 that we just read on chapter 3, uh, 18, Love is the motivation for this covenant. It is the motivation for this pact between the two of them. You remember that in the Old Testament, a covenant was when they, they pick up this animal and they divided the animal in half and they said, this pact, this agreement that I'm doing between you, you and me is not to be broken. And if we do break that, it will be like that animal broken in half. We put, we're swearing our own lives on this, this dependency. Now that's the word covenant. And we hear that God has made a covenant, right? With Abraham, God has made a covenant with David later. And he made a new covenant in the New Testament. So that is, that expression is this commitment that puts someone's life in line. That is motivated by love. I like the way that Pastor Ralph Davis, and I'm relying a lot on his commentary here, says that this text not merely describes a relation of David and Jonathan. Rather, this text is extending its comfort to any Israelite who would receive it. And here's the message. In confusion 
Now I want you to pay attention on this. In confusion, in trouble, you take yourself to the person who has made a covenant with you. In a time of trouble, in a time of confusion, you take yourself to the one person who has made a covenant with you. In David's disintegrating world, there was yet one space of sanity, one refuge is still intact, and that was Jonathan. That was covenant. That was David could expect this kindness in this raw world where he was living. End of quote. So we should not actually be surprised when we catch believers in the Bible in the act of doing what David did in, chapter, in this chapter, running to the one dependable refuge that remains, to the one who has bound himself to them by the covenant and from whom they can expect this hesed-like treatment. So I want you to open your Bibles to Psalm 25. Psalm 25. And mind you, this um, loving kindness, this commitment, it it's really has its root in the Lord. He made us in his image, right? And because he made us in his image, we can express the same kind of love that God has for his people. That's why you can see Jonathan displaying that love, because he made us in his image, so this love that comes from God, and that's why the psalmist and even David here in Psalm 25 is expressing, here's why I can trust the Lord, because this is who he is. Verse 6, what does it say there? Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions, According to your loving kindness, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his way. He leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble in the way. All the paths of the Lord are what? Loving kindness. There you were there. It's all that he is. This is his very core and truth. To those who keep his covenant, see the connection? A covenant, there is loving kindness. When there is covenant, there is loving kindness in his testimony. So, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way to choose. And in verse 14, he says, The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. I, I really appreciate verse 15. Sometimes we are in situations that we feel we don't have no way out. What can I do? I can trust the Lord's loving kindness, his faithfulness, that he's able to disentangle, to take my feet out of this complicated case situation. So he said ultimately flows from a formal covenant promise, but really from the very nature of the covenant God. Yahweh, who is rich in this kind of love, this he said, and fidelity. He, um, how about someone opening Exodus chapter 34, verse 6? Um, someone, I normally don't do this, but if someone can read that for us. Chapter 34, verse 6. Very good. Thank you. So this is God talking about himself. This is the first time that he says his own name to someone, and he's revealing that to uh, Moses, and he says, do you want to know me, Yahweh, this God that is self-existent? This is who I am. I am compassionate. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. You will never perish when you fall into the abyss of God's loving kindness. Ultimately, that is our only recourse, and of course, the one rich 
in loyalty and fidelity has come near to his oppressed people. You seek him and you find yourself in the arms of God, the God who can be trusted. Don't forget that David has taught you. In confusion and trouble, you take yourself to the one who has made a covenant with you. He's the only recourse in, in uncertainty. That's a wonderful point that even a mere man like Jonathan can express that, let alone the source of this committed love that we can find in our Lord. Moving on to verse 12 then. Um, our second characteristic of this covenant love is a covenant proves a vehicle for uncommon faithfulness. Uncommon faithfulness. This is not the kind of behavior that you would expect from a prince. Um, so let's, let's read together verses 12 through um, 23. Actually, we'll just read one through uh, 12 through 16. So then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, the third day, behold, if there is any good feeling toward David, shall I not then send it to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not make known to you, and send you away that you may go in safety. So Jonathan is formally committing himself to always act as he promised he would do in chapter 18, when he made that covenant. But that is why this covenant is so unusual. One, simply not do what Jonathan does here. You didn't hand over your place to your rival and promise to protect him. David was already anointed the next king in line. This is not um, usual for knowing that there's someone replacing my father. I'm going to just let him take that place and consequently his own place as a prince. So if Jonathan were acting normal in the society, he would dispose of David. He would kill David himself. In fact, that is what angers Saul so much, as we're going to read later, is that Jonathan's com commitment to David flies a smack in the face of all political sense. Do you understand that supporting this guy means that you're losing your throne? You're losing your ability to be king here. Jonathan's covenant then really did seek first, right, as in the New Testament says, another kingdom. He didn't seek his own. It didn't make sense. One of the strange things covenant accomplishes. Even more unusual is the commitment that Jonathan urges upon David in verses 14 to 16. Time will come when Jonathan, not David, will be in the fugitive role, the needy one. Though the text is difficult, the overall sense is clear. So verse 14, what does he say? If I am still alive, he realizes that once a new king is in, the previous dynasty dies. And he says, if I am still alive, will you not show me loving kindness of the Lord? Would you show that his said, that commitment love, that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. So now we have these two houses. They are committed to each other. That though the norm was to have these um, type of uh, killing that happens after a king, uh, uh, someone is put in, in the throne, He's saying, you will preserve me as I will preserve you. If we give his hope to these provisions in 17, he says, Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. When he came to power, he would preserve both Jonathan's life and his descendants. But according to the wisdom of the age, such promises will be regarded the height or the depth of folly. Why would you do that? When a new regime or dynasty came to power, the name of the game was purging. Everyone is dead. We can read this in several ancient texts, not necessarily just the Bible, but that was the norm even during the ancient times. 
But you can read some in, in, uh, in a scripture. When you're reading through 1 Kings or 2 Kings or Chronicles, you will see that quite a lot. For instance, I'm not going to read here, but Baasha, when he came to the throne, he killed everyone that was there. Or Zimri, or Jehu. Jehu killed, killed Ahab and then all his and his wife and his kids, not one of them escaped. That was the norm. You didn't let them live. So there will be no rivalry or competitors to the throne. So as um, Pastor Ralph Davis explains, the new king always needed to solidify his position. It was conventional political policy, solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it, everybody believed it, everybody practiced it. Well, almost, David didn't do that. He would preserve the crown prince family because he gave a promise to do so. I think what is more remarkable of this transformation in from uh, verses 11 to 12 is that in this, um, it's a, a long speech that Jonathan is giving here. It's a, a total of 162 Hebrew words in four different quotations in a section. And um, these quotes contain nine mentions of Yahweh's name and an unusually higher number for a stretch of text extending only on 13 verses. These facts suggest that the author intended for this stretch of text to be more than just a simple completion of a plan of a, uh, to convey Saul's thoughts about David. In fact, in this section may be viewed as a thematic centerpiece of the story of Jonathan. Several contended-based reasons to be given in support of this contention. So first, this part here, the individual next in the dynasty succession to the king after Saul was also the one who took responsibility for David's escape in Saul. Since it was Jonathan who came up with the plan and swore the oaths, the sin negates any claim that David duped and coerced others into participating in this flight from the king. Because we would think, well, David is just convincing him and turning his mind around. But who gave the plan? Who came up with the plan? This is what I'm going to do. That was Jonathan. Second, this section portrays the establishment of a covenant between the house of David and the house of Jonathan that would later lead David to defy the conventional wisdom regarding the elimination of potential rivals to the throne. Under the terms of this agreement, when David became king, he was to show the son of Saul unfailing kindness like that of the Lord. Seeing to it that Jonathan will not be killed in a purge, and furthermore, David must never terminate the commitment to be loyal, to never cut off his kindness to him and his descendants. And that's exactly what David did. We're not going to read it there, but if you want to Look ahead and take a look at, take a peek at John, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. And now Saul is already dead and Jonathan is dead and David has become king now, only over um, part of the, uh, of the kingdom. And yet he invites Jonathan's son to live with him, to be with him in his palace. And even when that son actually made some dubious decisions and, and foolish decisions, he still loved and cared for him as he promised to his friend. And then lastly, this section contains the first indication that the Lord would someday, and it's a ski here, the Lord would someday grant David success on an international scale. Jonathan's request assumed that the Lord would cut off every one of David's enemies of the first of the earth. The glimmer of a prophetic insight in Jonathan's word would rather explicitly be affirmed by the author. Jonathan's words unwittingly were at the same time condemnatory of his father, who has called him his enemy, as well as prophetic. The Lord would establish the dynasty of David, and we know that his successor is our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And the Lord will put to death all the enemies of the Lord. So in, the, in this way, Jonathan made this covenant with the house of David. The treaty sought the mutual welfare of both parties and was motivated by a noble kind of loved, love that was provided in the law. 
Now, I want to take a moment here. I know that this is kind of off of our day-to-day living. God's people today are not living of a, in the edge of a dynastic transition. We're not having a king. We're not electing a king. You still see this uncommon fidelity in the Christian life of God's people through perhaps even a less dramatic form. But we all have seen this kind of faithfulness, haven't we? I want to share with you, I think about my, my mother. It's one of the most impactful testimonies. My dad was not a believer for a long time, and he, he was really difficult. Um, and I just remember as a kid, I just would look at her and say, Mom, why? Why would you cope with that? Why would you not answer back <laughs> and fight him back? Or it wasn't she was be- he was not beating her up. <laughs> he was just mean. And yeah, he, she was so kind and so loving. She, he would look at me and say, son, it's because of the Lord. It is because of his faithfulness that I'm able to do this. On my own, I couldn't do it. It is his faithfulness that causes people to act selflessly against their own nature and their own comfort. It was this uncommon faithfulness that surprised me to see more church members. I had a surgery once on my nose, and it was, had some bad stuff going on. It was long-time recuperation of that surgery. But it surprised me that I had more people from the church than my own family taking turns to stay with me at the hospital. This kind of love that you don't see in the world. Philippians 2, I think it really speaks of this kind of selfless, seeking the interest of others. Jonathan was not seeking his own interest. He was seeking the interest of the one he realized the Lord had chosen to be the next king. Philippians chapter 2, it's a well-known passage to us, but it's a a great reminder. Paul is saying, you know, you you guys are such a good example. You're, You're very good believers. You love one another, and I want you to make my joy complete. Verse 2. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent in one purpose, do nothing from selfish, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. We think highly of ourselves, of our rights. What should be next for me? He continues, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves in which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he could have asked everyone to serve him. He would have asked anyone to do whatever he wanted because he was Lord and we could do that. And yet he decided to wash his disciples' feet. And yet he decided to live in a body and with a family that was very poor. He humbled himself. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in the appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. This kind of attitude that we see exemplified here is a kind of attitude that our Lord wants us to live out, to be selfless, to be other-centered, to think about others' interests. And I don't know, maybe I should refrain to be so pointed here. I, I remember one of the things I was debating, should I be pointed to the church and say, call you out when the Lord is bringing conviction? And I can't help it, but I, I would like to challenge the older man at GCF and the older woman Can you please go beyond your family? Would you consider others also in need of encouragement? In need of mentorship? 
taking the step to be selfless and not make the summer about enjoying me time. I, this is just the time that I have to enjoy myself, enjoy my family. There's nothing wrong with hanging out with your family, but include others. The Lord saved you and put you in a body of believers that you ought to love and care for. Would you purpose to seek others, to be an encouragement to them? Would you display a Christ-like, uncommon faithfulness to others? The world serves by convenience, right? Well, whatever, what doesn't make me uncomfortable, I'll do it. That's how we want to do just the minimal, right? I just want to do the minimal. Jonathan went beyond. Whatever you do, whatever you ask, I'm do for you. Because I'm not going to consider my own interests, my own kingdom. Would you model to the younger families this loving, loyal commitment by faith? I know we are imperfect. I know that we are tempted to be self-centered. But the Lord gives grace. And to you younger people, I'm going to include myself, I want to say, how are you nurturing these relationships that will provide you with these safe havens when you are in a crisis? Are there opportunities for you to grow? Are there opportunities for you to be expanding your circle of friends? I don't have a problem with cliques. You know, it's just so natural that you will gravitate toward the people that you're friends with, that you have things in common. But I do have a problem with cliques. They're not open to other people. They're not inviting to other people. But always should be expanding and evolving and maturing. Don't wait for someone to reach out to you asking for help or wait to ask for encouragement and guidance yourself. God will use his people as instruments in your life just as he used mature and faithful Jonathan to display uncommon, selfless faithfulness to David. And I, I want to stop here today. I actually plan to go all the way, but I think um, the Lord has given us enough to think about. And as we return in the next week to chapter 20, 20 and we'll see the other points, the covenant that may demand more, this costly commitment, we will be challenged to think more thoroughly about what our Lord has given to us. I do want to give you the rest of the story of George Matheson. More than just thinking about the, the fellowship with other people and all of that, we want to see how the Lord's faithfulness toward us protects and cares for us. So George Matheson, who served in the pastoral ministry, the Lord richly blessed him, finally bringing him to a church where he regularly preached for over 1,500 people, 1,500 people. And he was a blind man, preaching to a seen congregation, predominantly seen congregation. He was only able to do this because of the care of his sister, but three years after the breakup, his sister was also leaving him. She was getting married, which was a good thing. But the thoughts flooded him. Who would care for him, a blind man? Not only that, but his sister's marriage brought fre fresh reminder of his own heartbreak over his fiancée's refusal to go through with life with a blind man. It is in the midst of the circumstance and intense sadness that the Lord gives him this hymn which he says he wrote in five minutes because it was in, in such um, despair that he was. He wrote the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Years later, the memory of rebuff came flooding back on the evening of his sister's wedding. And he recalls the pain that night as he tells how on that occasion he was alone. He says, my hymn was composed in the midst of Inilian, the name of the city, Inilian, on the evening of 6th of June, 1882, when I was 40 years of age. I was alone in the midst of that time. It was the night of my sister's marriage, and the rest of the family were staying overnight in Glasgow. Something happened to me, which was known only to myself, and which caused me the most severe mental suffering. 
the ham was the fruit of that suffering. Who can I cling to when I have nobody else? And he, and he says, oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee the back, the life I own, that in thy ocean depths its flow may richer and fuller be. Whatever I lost, whatever it was not with me anymore, even those most precious relationship I have in the Lord himself. George never married and continued to prove the truth of his hymn, though, it was a love that would not let him go, the love of Christ for the sinner, the love that was demonstrated for all the world to see at the cross of Calvary. He served faithfully for over 30 years in ministry until his death. Not only did he preach, but he wrote a number of books on the spiritual matters which proved popular in cont with contemporary Christians. His ministry and writings came to the attention of Queen Victoria. That was during that time. And when in Scotland, she invited him to preach in Balmoral. She also had one of his sermons on the book of Job published in the, um, in the official documents of the queen. So George knew and trusted in a love that would not let him go. Do you know this kind of love? Do you know this God? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you, Lord. Um, in humility of heart because we are so blessed to have your love, your committed love toward us that every day, Lord, even in my way here and seeing a car accident, you protect us every turn we take. You keep us from temptation in so many ways that we're even not aware of. You demonstrate your faithfulness again and again, just as you did with David, by using people that were an encouragement to us, by using people that will strengthen us and be a safe haven for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have the same kind of attitude toward one another. Lord, we can't do this on our own. We are so prideful. We are so self-seeking. Help us to fix our gaze and our eyes in Christ Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who served as an example of someone that emptied himself, that set aside his own rights to serve instead of waiting to be served. I do pray, Lord, that you would help us. Bless our week in Jesus' name. Amen.